it's like always a big step, you know, and I, yeah. it's categorized. So that was the introduction to Shmona Esrei. And now the, the new notebook, mm-hmm. at least for the moment, and looks like it's pretty full, at least for now, is some of the halachic principles of Shmona Esrei, by which I mean I'm not able to teach the halachos of Shmona Esrei. I don't know them. Um, so I'm certainly not qualified to comment on them. But I can talk about what I've seen in terms of what the halachic principles are. So again, a few of them we already talked about because Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur time, we spoke about two of those topics in, in more depth. Excuse me. One was the importance of saying the words and actually articulating them so that you can hear them. And at the same time, nobody else should be able to hear your words. So if you're in shul, the person next to you really shouldn't be able to hear you davening, even though you should be able to hear yourself davening. And the second one we talked about at that time was the importance of standing with your feet close together Mm -hmm. and also the hands together and ideally with eyes closed um, or still. I mean, I think the, it's usually clasped together. Um, in some way, I don't know if it has this or this, but they're held together because it's like the binding of Isaac. I think still at your sides would also be acceptable. Um, I, but I don't know the halacha. It could be you're right that that's even better. I, I, I don't know. All I can do is say the, the bits. I can do the part, whatever, you know, I've seen that these are, these are the halachic ideas that come up in Shonesri. There are probably many others that I don't know either. Um, but they give us insight. First of all, they're helpful for davening from Nasser, and they give us insight into what we're doing. I've heard that on, on Rosh Hashanah, you daven out loud. I don't know. I haven't seen that. Um, I could see that as being a problem for people. Yeah, but that's what... Um, well, I don't want to take, you know, take your time now. I can tell you about it. But um, we were learning um, about... Uh, Hearing, uh, he didn't hear her. Saw her now. Yeah. Right. But it was it was Rosh Hashanah, and she should have been davening out loud. I've never <laughs> heard that. Never. In yeah. fact, we learned the halachos of the davening from Hannah. Right. So I never heard right, it. Right, but that's what she was doing. Then. I never heard it as a criticism of her. Even not, it's not. It's not a criticism, yeah. but. He was criticized because he thought that she was doing something wrong. Right. Um, but that Very interesting. That was, Never heard anything like that. It reminded me that when I'm davening at Anna's house about 7 in the morning, mm-hmm. I did it out loud. I mean, you know, pretty much. And she came in, she said, you're davening out loud. And I said, I thought it was all right. <laughs> she said, it's not, you so there, right, so there was one, one passage we saw that said that when a person davens very loudly, now this is talking about Shemona Esrei in particular, yes. there is a concept of raising our voices in prayer uh-huh. as a community on a communal level yes. and a person, I mean with yes. women, you know, if, if the men are going to hear you, that could be an issue, but, but there is a concept of raising our voices communally in prayer, but there's an idea that when a person davens in particular Shemona Esrei out loud, that that's like uh, foolish or it's a lack of faith mm-hmm. because it looks as if the person feels that God can't hear them unless they speak louder. And really, it doesn't take any volume for Hashem to be able to hear your prayers. But, but if you're davening out loud, I don't know that you have to stop if there's no one else around. Let's yeah. say you're in your house yeah. and you're davening, and if you say it a little louder, it's easier for you to hear it and focus. Yeah. I think it's a question for a Rav. It might be perfectly fine. It might be great no, because it's helping you stay focused and it's and not... If it disturbs them, I didn't want to do it under any circumstances. Right, so that I might be different. Kind of whisper right. now right. to, to right. <laughs> So that's the usual way. It could be that if you're by yourself and it's just you and Hashem mm-hmm. and you're not screaming it out like <laughs> here so you could hear me, it's just a little louder because for you that's easier or more yeah. comfortable. It could be, it's fine. I don't know. Like I said, that's what I said. I don't know the halachos. <laughs> <laughs> I just don't, you know. And uh, it's very good to have a Rav that you could ask. And if we have, I guess, specific questions, we could ask them, like as we've done before. Although I know we're all waiting on the other reply to get put down on paper, but we'll get to that in Red session. 
Okay, so today, this is a, so starting on this topic, what I want to start with, this is not the introduction to Shmon Asri, the introduction to the halachic side of Shmon Asri, let's say, um, is that there is a contrast based on a Gemara, which I had trouble finding, and then I found that I had printed out this page, which happens to reference it as a source. <laughs> so all that work, I was like looking and looking, looking, couldn't find it. Okay, it's a Gemara in Shabbos Daf Yud Aleph, where the Gemara contrasts Torah and Tefillah, and it contrasts them as Chaye Olam and Chaye Sha'a. This is something we've mentioned in the past, but I think it was probably quite a long time ago. Does it sound familiar? It was like a really long time ago, the last time I remember mentioning it. Um, Chaye Olam means, I think, eternal life, meaning life that is Olam forever and ever, versus Chaye Sha'a, which is, well, the normal translation of Chaye Sha'a would be very temporary life, life that is not lasting. So if I try, like, for example, when I was trying to find the source, I said, you know what I'll do? I'll Google. I'll Google the term because that's likely to bring me to every Torah that somebody's posted that I'll have the source to it or there are these wiki text things, you know. Like, you know, that's my, that's my level of Bikiyas and Gemara. <laughs> I'll Google it and I'll see if I can find the source. Like, I know I'd even looked up the source once before when I'd first seen the idea, but I couldn't find it. Anyway. When I Google it, what I got was the term Chayesha from the Gemara. But it does not, not this reference. Meaning that the more common use of Chayesha in the Gemara is when somebody is alive, but it's clear that they're only going to live a very short time. Come in, hi, how are you? Okay, so that would be called Chayesha. I suppose you could call it temporal life. Right? Life that is really not going to last very long. Do you want something to drink, hot or cold? Oh, no. Okay, okay we, we do always have, like, coffee and stuff. Oh, yeah. All right. So that's, that's the Chaye Sha'a. But that's very confusing, of course, to say that we're contrasting Torah. The Gemara is contrasting Torah and calling it Chaye Olam. That's not confusing, right? The Chaye Olam Nata Besocheinu, Hashem has implanted eternal life within us, and that's thanking Hashem for giving us the Torah. But it seems so odd to call tefillah chayesha, temporary life, like short-term life, life that isn't going to last. That seems very strange. And I would say, even to increase it, how could you say it about any, any mitzvah? How could you say any mitzvah that you do, any action you take that has a spiritual basis behind it, that mitzvah is forever. It's not going to go away. So in what sense is it chayesha? All right. Can I just interrupt? Yeah, please. What, what do you mean by chayesha? Yeah, I, you didn't miss much, actually. That's the question. So there's a Gemara in Shabbos that contrasts chaye olam and chaye sha'a. Chaye olam, like olam va'ed, forever and ever, meaning Torah. Torah is eternal life. And it's in contrast to tefillah, davening, which is chaye sha'a. Sha'a is like an hour. It's like a, a period of time, but it doesn't last very long. It's a short period of time. A sha'a is a short period of time. So the, the classic halachic term, chaye sha'a, is when a person is alive, but it's clear they are not going to live very long. So what does it have to do with dominating? Uh, not, not, let's say, about the length of the life, but the idea that the davening is... If you're taking care of davening, that Gemara says, someone who's taking, who's learning Torah is involved in chaye olam, in eternal life. Someone who's involved in davening is involved in chaye sha'a? Maybe because it's like a time-bound mitzvah? Maybe because it's a time-bound mitzvah. Uh, the truth is Torah is. Technically speaking, learning Torah, even though it's all the time, is a time-bound mitzvah. That's why women are not obligated at any particular time to study Torah. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah? 
It's a time-bound mitzvah. Why? Because at every time, you're obligated to it. <laughs> and each time, there's a mitzvah in this moment, so you end up being obligated all the time. So that's why. It's not that women don't have to, like, learn. Because, I mean, we have to know Torah. Like, we have to know we have to know how, the halachos, which I just gave a whole introduction explaining I don't know the halachos of Shemona really. We're just going to talk about halachic principles involved in Shemona uh, we have to. You have to know how to live. You have to know how to relate to Hashem. You have to know what your davening means. You have to like. There's plenty of Torah to learn, right? So what what's missing is that it isn't. It's a mitzvah sasei shavzman grama. So unless you're busy with something else, the time itself obligates you to learn. So, okay. But even the Mishnah, the Gemara, right, that we read in the morning with Birchas Satara, we say that here are the mitzvos that you eat the fruits in this world. And the principle is still there, la'olam haba, and one of them is iun tefillah, thinking deeply into your davening. Is that like how? What is chayes sha'a about? Okay, so that's kind of where I wanted to start today, and hopefully that will lead us into our discussion of kavana, not the original discussion of kavana we had a couple years ago, but specifically relating to kavana for shmora esrei. Okay, so Rav Yisrael Salanter says that. The concept of chaye sha'a and what it tells us about davening is what kind of mental activity is required for davening. What Chazal are contrasting is your mindset, what like the avoda of learning Torah versus the avoda of davening in terms of what do you have to do? What is your mind doing? What are you involved in? Because it says there is involved in chaye olam, involved in chaye sha'a. When a person's studying Torah, says Rav Yisrael Salanter, we're trying to focus very hard on a particular subject to understand everything about it. We're asking questions, we're looking for answers, we're saying how do we define something rigorously so that we know what it is, categories, distinctions. But davening is not about clarifying issues. It's not about investigation. It's not about questions and answers. He says the only mental activity required for davening for prayer is to identify with it according to the particular life situation we're in when we're davening. So it's a, it's a, we have to focus very hard on davening, but it's a different kind of focusing. Mm-hmm. One of them is a focus on chaye olam, mm-hmm. on what is eternal, what is truth. How do I define this? How will I know that it's always going to be the case in such a situation? How does this apply to this behavior or that behavior or this situation or that? That's Torah. That's Chaye Olam. That's lasting forever. But the kind of focus that it takes to daven properly is a focus that brings us to be inspired by our davening, moved by our davening, changed by our davening, which means relating to the davening. Relating to the davening means you get so deeply involved in what you're talking about with Hashem that you stop thinking about everything outside of that. You're just completely there. Being completely there is not purely intellectual. You could learn Torah in a purely intellectual way. I'm not saying that's the ideal but it is fundamentally an intellectual process. Tefillah is not, you can't say that somebody who davened on a fundamentally intellectual plane has accomplished what they needed to do. Okay? You, you could make some kind of case, you can't even, I was going to say you could make a case for it in Shema, but you can't even, even though that's Seichel. Back in Shema, it's Seichel. Because it's Seichel that was built on emotion that was built on physicality. Because that was each of the levels. You went from the brachos to the psuke de zimra to the shema. You didn't just jump into shema. The avoda of shema has as its prerequisite that you've said psuke de zimra. Not, not because you have to halachikni necessarily to be at shema. But there's a process there that's building one floor on top of another floor. So you're recruiting. You've already got those things going and then you add another ball. You know, it's like someone who's juggling. And then you start with one and then you add a second ball. And when you've got those two going in the air, you can add a third one. And then a fourth one. But you don't just set down the first balls and now say, now I'm juggling the fourth ball. The goal is to get them all going at once. So we start with one and then we layer on another and we layer on another. So with Shmona Esrei, we can say that that's adequate. When a person is davening, it has to be intellectual as well as emotional. 
It has to be involving the intellectual and the emotional and the physical needs, which we tie up in standing still in Shemona Esrei, right? We, we, we kind of mute that, but we don't just send it behind. And in fact, it comes out in the words of each bracha because the structure of a bracha is a structure of physical. Even the Shemona Esrei is made of 19 brachos, right? So we don't leave it behind. What that means, because it, because it depends on the situation I am in in the moment, what is my life story right now? What are the things that are on my mind right now? What do I feel I'm lacking right now? What's my emotional state right now? Can I get my emotional state even more deeply involved? Was I overwhelmed with love in Shema? Was I overwhelmed with fear and awe, remembering Schar and Onesh? Was I spaced out a little bit? Right? Like, where was I emotionally? Where am I physically? Where is all this? All those things change constantly. All those things are always in flux. So from day to day, from one tefillah to the next, even within a day, the way we relate to tefillah is constantly different. It's not chaye olam, that which lasts and is true forever and ever in a pure sense. It's that which is sha'a, temporary. It's constantly changing. And he, so this is Ravi Yisrael Salanter's explanation for what, what are Chazal telling us by saying that one who is involved in learning Torah is involved in Chaye Olam, and one who is involved in davening is involved in Chaye Shah. It's because he's involved in life, in the aspects of life that are constantly moving and changing. That's coming into it. In addition, you have to bring the intellectual, you have to even bring the spiritual. So, and the will, and the, so those things can be constant. But you can say that this is a whole constant when a whole big chunk of it is going to be constantly on the move and changing and like some kind of moving target. When a person who is praying is inspired, it is according to his reality at that moment. That's, that, that's really the summary line. That's Rabbi Ruven Leichter's explanation of Rav Yisrael Salanter's Explanation in Or Yisrael. You keep on quoting. I did listen to some of his shiurim, and they're awesome. But what I'm quoting from here, he wrote two books that are in English, and they are awesome. They are relatively awesome. new in the last year or two. My husband's Rebbe. Oh, so then here's the, your Hanukkah presents if he doesn't know about the books. They are awesome. Absolutely. This is a life changer. This is just a stupendous book. Sorry. No, go for it. This is a, you know, when you have like, when you have the antibiotics, not the antibiotics, like for sickness. I'm saying when you have what somebody needs for that, right, you got to have it. I'm very grateful to having discovered these farms and I'm happy to pass it on to the next person. I've given them as gifts. (laughs) It's just awesome. Okay. So this, what I was just reading from and quoting from was from the book on tefillah. And it's come up before. Yeah, because otherwise I, I, I just discovered Rav Ruvin Leichter a couple years ago. There was oh, a Mishpacha article. Israel. No, I never heard of him there. We meet him every time we go to Israel. We always That's amazing. Him. Yeah. He's incredible. So there was a Mishpacha article about how to do tshuva, and it was absolutely revolutionary for me. Oh, Changed he was everything. Oh, recently. Recently, I didn't see it. I, I haven't oh, had yeah. a subscription since, like, June. So if it's more recent, I would love no. to see the article. No, before June. Oh, so it was like before Yom Kippur, but it was at least a year ago, maybe yeah, two okay. years ago. And that was, then I got like totally hooked. Okay. All right. So that, that was, that's this piece, the beginning introduction to Chayesha. I want to make a suggestion. This is really my own suggestion. I think I found in, in trying to explore it more and see if there was any merit to it, I think I, I found some very... Um, more than suggestive indications that this is a, a direction that's helpful. And I definitely found it helpful to thinking about tefillah as chaye sha'ah. And I hope you will also and find it, um, find it something that's helpful in, I'm about to say Shmona Esrei and to stop for a second and say, so why am I here? Why? It's very helpful. It's also good for remembering, like, do I need to say Al-Hanisim or Vashi <laughs> Baruch? Like, sometimes you just, like, plunge into Shemona Esra and you're halfway through and you realize, you know, it's Shabbos. I probably wasn't on Rafainu. Like, <laughs> okay. Right? Like, so it's just like, like, okay, wait, why am I here? What is my objective? What am I coming for? Okay. And that's, that, this is to suggest 
I do want to suggest like a slightly different tack also with Haisha. It's not in contradiction, it's just different. And that is this. We know that the, the Shemona Esrei was established Keneged Tmidim. It corresponds to the Korban Tamids of the day. That's a, that's a Chazal. Tefillah Keneged Tmidim Takanum, I think is the wording. Okay, that, that is, that's where the Shemona Esrei is. Now, if we look at the very first place that a Korban is described in the Torah... Always a good idea, right? It's in Gracious Perak Dalid. Vehevel Hevi Gamhubi Bichoros Tsono Umichel Vehen. Hevel also brought a korban from the best, the choicest of his flocks and their fats. Vayisha Hashem El Hevel Vael Minchaso. And Hashem Vayisha, they rehearsed. Rav Hirsch defines it as, I want to find his definition because it's a helpful one. It's like turning, I don't, I didn't pull out Rav Hirsch, I see. Turning towards, Hashem turned towards Hevel and his gift. The Elkayin, the El Minchaso, and to Kayin, and to his gift, Lo Sha'a. He did not turn. And Cain was very angry and his face fell. He was very dismayed and upset. Rashi translates Vayisha and God turned as Vayifen. He turned. He turned to face. Vayifen is like Panim, the front face. It's to turn to put your, your, your face towards somebody. It's to show you are interested, inclined towards, and even more than that. In fact, it's the Orachayim puts it like this. The Orachayim asks the question, why does it seem to duplicate? The Torah says, Hashem turned toward Hevel and toward his gift, and to Cain and to his gift he did not turn. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't it just say, Hashem did not turn, El Minchas Hevel El Minchas Cain, like to the gift of Hevel and the gift of Cain. Why is it the gift of Havel and Havel and the gift of Cain and Cain? Each of them. So he says because what this Sha'a or Vayisha means is Mare Ponim Shel Ratzon Lemekarve Teshura showing or displaying a face of Ratzon of, of will, of, of satisfaction. I'm pleased with what's happening. Of pleasure to the one who is giving the gift. It's not, it's not the gift that's making the difference. It's the person giving the gift and showing it to them, showing them. So in this case, yes, it shows up in the quality of the gift, right? Hevel brings a nicer, a better gift than Cain. But that's not, Hashem's not reacting to the value of the gift. He's reacting to what was going on in the person when they made the gift. Now, it happens to be, it plays out. You can see what they were thinking by the fact that Cain brought the least of what he had and Hevel brought the best of what he had. But let's say the least of... The Pasuk wouldn't have changed if the least of... If Cain had been a diamond cutter. And so the least of what he had was some cheap diamonds that were only worth $50,000. And Hevel had brought the best of his flock, and that had been worth $50, right? It's not the value of the gift that's the issue here. It's what's going on in the person bringing the gift. Are they trying to bring the best for Hashem? That's what Hashem is responding to. And that's why it says, Vayisha el Hevel, he turned to Hevel, that's even first, before the gift, and to the gift, that means, receiving the gift, being willing to receive it. And to Cain, he did not show this face of satisfaction, not to him, not to the gift. Sforno says something interesting. Um, sorry, it is very interesting, but I meant to say something similar. <laughs> it's also interesting, but very similar. Okay, which means that Vayisha or Sha'a means turning to face someone 
to show them ratzon. That's what that's what it means. It's very very interesting and very different, and I think shed some light back toward the definition of tefillah, which is a korban. I mean, that's the closest we get to a korban now. Is tefillah, which is called chayesha'a, a life of turning towards Hashem and, and his ratzon and hoping he turns to us with his ratzon. It's having our ratzons meet. There's even some indications that through Ibn Ezra, Rav Hirsch kind of works it in. The Ibn Ezra goes straight at it. I was very puzzled, really very puzzled at first and still a little puzzled. The Ibn Ezra is explaining what does this mean, Vaisha? Because it's not normally used throughout Torah this way. It's really here by this very first korban, which is teaching us the principle of a korban. What is it meant to be and how is it where? He says it means like Kibel, he accepted it. He was, Hashem was accepting him and his korban. And then all of a sudden, he goes on and he says, This is the Kederach Sod HaKorban. This is the secret of Karbanos. Okay, and then all of a sudden he goes on to discuss all different words relating to time. I forget, there's like Shana and Sha'a and Chodesh and Yomim. And I'm sitting there going, wait, why, why are we talking about the time words? Well, because it was Sha'a. But, but he didn't define Sha'a as time. He defined it as being Mikabel. And Rav Hirsch, this is, I like this. I went to look in... In Tehillim Kuf Memhe, better known as Ashrei, even though it doesn't actually start with Ashrei because that's the end of the previous parrot, but that's how we know it. Ritzon Yireyav Ya'aseh, the will of those who fear him, God shall do. Ve'es Shav Asam, and their cries or their pleas, which when you look at the word Shava, this way you realize it's closely related to Sha'a. Because the sh- the v sound is a vav, okay. Yishma he shall hear ve'yoshi aim and he will save them. And the word yoshia is also really got a, a root of shinayin. It's really very surprising, but I never noticed it until I was thinking about Sha'ah. and Rav Hirsch. Sorry, I switched the order of the pages, and so now it's a little trickier for me to follow it. I wrote, see next page. There isn't a next page. So it must be a previous page. Okay. Here's how he translates. Ritzon or his comments. The Lord will fulfill the desires of those who, because they fear him, have no other wishes but such as would be in accordance with his will. Of those who subject all their lives and ambitions to his direction. That was his translation right there of Ritzon The will of those who fear him, he will do. How'd you get there? Like, right? It's having your will be God's will. That's the Perkeavos. Ase Ritzoncha. Those who have no other wishes but such as would be in accordance with his will. Those who subject all their lives and ambitions to his direction. God will grant the requests of those who make his will their own from the very beginning and who desire the fulfillment of their wishes only if the Lord will find them to be conducive to their own welfare and to that of their fellow men. What we know as Sheyamali Mishalos Libenu Litova. He should fulfill the requests of our heart for the good. It's not that we want whatever we want no matter what. We want what we want if it's good for us and good for others. When such men cry to him for the deliverance of their existence from danger, he will hear them and he will certainly bring them to salvation. That's italicized in the original. Bring them to salvation. That's v'yoshiyem. He will save them. Or, as is indicated by the literal meaning of the Hebrew word, he's now going to tell us what's the literal meaning of v'yoshiyem. I thought it meant bring them to salvation. He will surely lead them to a renewed, invigorated life. Shah. It is renewed, it is invigorated, it is changing life. That's life in this world. So it's starting to give us some hints 
about this idea of tefillah as chaye sha'a. It's life in this world, which is constantly changing. It's our approach to Hashem based on where we are in this world, which is constantly changing. And the reaction, meaning if Hashem does answer our prayers because, I mean, he will always hear our prayers, but if he does our will because it is his will, really, and he saves us, that's called Yeshua. Mm -hmm. And that is also part of renewing, changing, invigorating this life. Now, there's another clue here, really, which is the renewed, invigorated life. And that is the nature of the Korban Tamid, which is what the Shemona Esrei comes to serve as. Um, the Korban Tamid... What's the word tamid? Again, something we talked about, but it was a really long time ago. Tamid means constant and consistent. It's each and every day, and it's also regularly through the day. That's what tamid means. It's consistency and constancy. It's we need to keep being renewed. You can't daven Shona Esrei on Sunday morning and that kind of carries you through the week. Mm-hmm. It needs a constant, because it's Chaye Sha'ah, it is rooted in the fluctuations and changes and vicissitudes of our emotional state and physical state, which are constantly changing, unlike Olam, which is eternal, unchanging, and infinite. So because of that constant change, it needs constant Rejuvenation. We need a constant boost of nourishment, right? The Kuzari says a person should crave to daven twice or three times a day like he craves to eat twice or three times a day. It's just a fundamental need, and it needs constant replenishment. You run out of steam, essentially, right? We need to keep getting the boosts of Hashem's Yeshua and Hashem's bracha to us. I want to also point out, and so, and this is, Meaning, I, th- this is where I'm starting to get out into just like my own thought. So I'll tell you that right now. If we look at the word chaye sha'a and see in it chaye she'e, so to speak. She'e meaning turning to. It means turning towards with, with a feeling of a, a desire to be closer, to relate. Right? That, that's what the she'e means. Turning closer to relate then we can understand it's actually not nus- it's not in Nusach Ashkenaz. In Nusach Svard, in Ritzei, the Shemona Esri says, uh, I'm looking over here, it's not in here. Ritzei Hashem Elokeinu Ba'amcha Yisrael. Nusach Ashkenaz is Ritzei Hashem Elokeinu Ba'amcha Yisrael Uvesfilosam. Hashem, please, Ritzei, find pleasing. It's the Ratzon part of the She'e, right? Of the Vayisha. Please find us sat- satisfactory, pleasing, good in your eyes, the, your nation Israel, and their prayers. In Nusach Sfard, it's Ritzei Hashem Elokeinu Ba'amcha Yisrael. Feel that way about the Jewish people. Ulatzfilosam she'e, and to their prayers you should turn. Like that's right there in the Shmona Esrei, essentially. Which. I think like all these pieces together make it legitimate to say that we could think of, well, let me add one, one last piece. Rav Hirsch defines with regard to Cain and Hevel, he says, this She'e and Vayisha is a momentary turning towards. Mm-hmm. It's temporary. It's not forever. Now, that does, does that mean that if Hevel wouldn't bring another korb on the next day, he wouldn't have the same result? He might. Right? It's that it needs constancy and consistency. It's not a one-off. It's not Megillah, you read it once a year or twice a year and you're done for a year. A Mullik, remember it once a year and that's good enough, right? This is, is there's a time limit. There's a unit of time. I think he's probably also um, also basing that a little off that Ibn Ezra. And how he translates, why does your face fall? Why are you, why are you upset? Reverse translates that as, 
Why are you angered at the past and depressed and hopeless for the future? He keeps tying it back to the time. The she'eh is this chaye sha'ah. It, it's clearly interwoven as the same word. So I think it's legit, legitimate Excuse me, to say tefillah is chaye sha'ah. Sha'ah, as in us turning toward Hashem and toward His will, that comes from shavasenu, our cries, our pleas, like Ritzon Yeriav Yasev, right? Our cries, our pleads, our, our feeling of desperation even, our feeling of need drives us to turn towards Hashem. And we all know it's true. We all know that's true. That drives us to turn to Him. We feel, I have no one else to turn to other than Hashem, so I turn to Hashem, right? And it's also Chayesha that it brings to Yeshua, Hashem turning to us, Vayisha, El Tfilasam She'e, right? El Tfila El Minchaso Lo Sha'a. That shouldn't happen to us, right? That this is Hashem rein, bringing us Yeshua and reinfusing our lives with energy and bracha and creative force. Which when you get right down to it is saying what we've been saying all along, which is recognizing in Shemona Esrei when we stand still, we are demonstrating that we're powerless. Remember we said this, Erev Yom Kippur, right? We're standing still, we're showing that we can't move, we can't speak, we can't see, we can't... The hands, the feet, that which drives us through the world and allows us to manipulate the world, we recognize that the true power of all that is from Hashem only. It's not our own power. That's really what we're saying. And so from our Shava comes Hashem's Yeshua, that reinvigorating and reinfusing us with life and energy and creative force. And that's how Mechadish Betuvo Bechol Yom Tamid, that Hashem is constantly infusing the world and we have to turn to Him. Life in Olam Haza is Sha'a. Piece by piece, temporary, hour by hour, Hashem's constant and continuous attention, infusion, care, creation, giving us life because otherwise it will turn into entropy. That is all the expression of his ratzon. That's his ratzon. And we come in tefillah and we express our ratzon. And that our ratzon should be his ratzon, and therefore they interplay that way. So I think with that in mind, it helps to parallel us to understand the concept of the korban, tamid. And what Rav Berkowitz says when we come into Shemona Esrei and understanding the halachas of Shemona Esrei is, all of the halachas of Shemona Esrei, all of them stem from the single idea that Shemona Esrei is a dialogue with Hashem, that we are standing before God, our creator, and speaking with him, and not only speaking with him, but hearing from him. It's a dialogue. Dialogue is not a monologue. And that, that informs how we stand and how we speak and what we wear and how we move and how we don't move. Everything in Shemona Esrei unfolds out of the single concept of awareness that I am standing and talking to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So the Gemara teaches in Yevamos, Kofi Amad Beis, one who davens should cast his eyes downward and his heart upwards. It's also awesome, right? So piece number one, sort of to turn that into usefulness, is why am I coming to daven? It's Chayesh Sha'ah. I am turning towards Hashem and I'm appreciating and recognizing that he turns towards me when I speak to him. Piece number two, I'm coming to Davin, my eyes down, but my heart up. Mm-hmm. Now, <laughs> this is, again, from Rabbi Leichter's book on Tefillah. Um, he quotes Rabbi Yona, and it's a very interesting quote and a very demanding quote. One who davens must cast his eyes downward and his heart upwards, namely, that he should think in his heart as though he were standing in the heavens. That's what it means. To send your heart upwards means you should feel that you're standing in the heavens. And remove from his heart all worldly pleasures and bodily desires. In keeping with the words of the early Chachamim, when you wish to concentrate, separate your body from your soul. It's like, no problem. But we've been introduced to this concept already, right? The idea that excuse me, Shemona Esri corresponds to Yom Kippur. Shemona Esri is to davening what Yom Kippur is to the holidays. It is a time where we say the body is like paused. Put it on pause. We recognize we need it. It's useful. It's the tool for the job. It isn't everything. It isn't me. It isn't the source of anything. And it isn't the purpose. 
So it's on hold. When you wish to concentrate, separate your body from your soul. And after developing this thought, regard yourself as if you are standing in the Beis HaMikdash. You start to understand why the Hasidim Rishonim used to take an hour to prepare for dawning. <laughs> right? It could take a while. According to Rabbeinu Yonah, Chazal's statement, the heart upwards, tells us two basic things for davening. That when you're davening, you're standing in the heavens, and that you have to remove yourself from your worldly desires. It's kind of interesting, because the description in last week's Parsha of Yaakov dreaming of the Sulam, right? With the feet of the Sulam towards the earth, Artsa, El Ha'aretz, not necessarily touching, and the head, actually it says touching, Hashomayma toward the heavens. So it's like touching, and yet it's only towards the heavens. And Hine Elohim Nitzavalav is always described that the, he saw the presence of God at the center of the ladder. Which is also like, it's sort of like disconnect. Yeah, I also Shabbos. thought so. It, yeah, it seems to be on top at the middle. What do you mean on top of the middle? Meaning, if the ladder is on this slope, then he's sensing the presence of Hashem coming from the middle. Over that this was over as the feet were in Basel and the head was Luz and he's in Makom Amikdash at the center, so yeah, what does that all mean? I have no idea, <laughs> no concept at all, right? What I was going actually was toward this description of the ladder, which, in accordance with a very interesting approach from Rav Moshe Eisman of Baltimore, was saying that essentially you have to feel that you're towards the earth but yet disconnected from. And where you're headed is towards the heavens. And hopefully that's how you reach it. Even though Shamayim, by definition, is Sham, is there. Like it's always farther than wherever you are. You can't just get there. No rocket will take you there. But yet it's Magia. Yet somehow you could reach it. Just by constantly heading towards it. Okay, so he says the second idea is somewhat easier to explain. I could understand that I have to remove from my worldly desires to get fully into Shemona Esrei. And we're saying to Hashem, you are interested in our needs. We talked about that at the beginning of the introduction to Shemona Esrei, the Masa Umatan, recognizing it's a dialogue, it's a negotiation, that we both have an interest in what we're talking about. Okay. But it's much more difficult to understand how you're standing in the heavens. Like, how do, I'm supposed to turn myself into somebody who's standing up, like past the malachim that removed like that doesn't seem so realistic for me so he brings a very interesting approach he says stars what's the quality of stars when you look up towards the heavens the quality is that they're so predictable you can chart them out a thousand years in advance you know exactly where each one is and where it's headed and what its arrangement is there's an orderliness Right, Hashem established all of the heavenly bodies in their in their mishmeras is like your duty cycle, like your watch. You know, each one has a routine and a job, and it keeps to that. There's a perfection there. It's meticulous. It's organized. If you look upward, that's what you see. If you look downward, what you see is chaos. What you see is entropy. What you see is things getting messed up people dying. So when we look upward and we say, you're standing in the heavens, Chazal tell us, stand in the heavens. Your eyes may be looking down, but your heart has to be looking up. Then what they're saying is, look up and re realize that even that which is down on the ground and looks chaotic, it's really all under Hashem's control. It's really all part of a plan. It may look chaotic to us, but if we would take a few, if we could take steps back to see the picture in the big way, it's completely organized and planned, and every detail has been worked through and is working toward the greater good of God's will. And this is that broadening of our view that he talked about earlier. Um, Rav, I heard Rav Berkowitz quoted the Gra, the Vilna Gaon. When we start to say Shemona Esrei, before we speak, we say, Hashem sefosai tiftach, Hashem, open my lips, ufi yagidzi It's a mini prayer. And my mouth will, will relate your praise. 
Please open my mouth and let, uh, please open my lips and my mouth will relate your praise. So the Gruff points out that the lips, that's the outside. That's the superficial aspect of speech. Hashem opened my lips as saying, let sound, make sound come out. But ufi agiti lasecha, the pe is the inside of the mouth. It's referring to the contents. And may that which I speak, may the words that I say actually have the content of being praise of God, not be empty, not be meaningless, not be with no thought in them, right? That they should be meaningful words of God's praise. The nefesh achayim, I'm going to jump, maybe jump ahead here a bit. Rav Chaim Volazhin says that when a person has gotten to the point of Shemona Esrei, he can't speak. He has connected his thoughts to higher spiritual realms and silenced his body to the point that the body can't do anything, let alone speak. I don't know if you remember. I'm not sure. Somewhere in here. Is that you explain Hanas to you? It could be. It could be. We certainly learned the halacha from there. Okay, you remember that we had a while ago um, that there are three parts of the body that are under a person's control, not under a person's control. So theoretically, the eye, the ear, and the nose are not fully under a person's control because they receive, right? Things can get in into your line of sight that you weren't expecting, okay? But the, ma- the, the mouth, the hand, and the foot are our ability to be mashpia. We're supposed to be able to choose when we're going to use them and not use them. But in Shemona Esrei, all of that gets silenced. We recognize that even there we don't have control. Okay, but then how are you going to say Shemona Esrei? You say silently. Okay, so that's why before we can even say Shemona Esrei, we have a mini prayer. Hashem, you open my mouth so that my mouth can speak your praise. Meaning, I'm going to have to use my mouth now, but I recognize that even that is not under my control, really. That's under your control. And the truth is, I heard Rabbi Haber say in a shir, that, that you, could, you could consider that perhaps the absolute peak of davening might not be Shemona Esrei, it might be Chazar Sashatz, the repetition by the Chazin. Because that's when you can say Shemona Esrei absolutely silently. Because the Chazin's Yotzi you. It's a fascinating concept. Like in a sense, Shemona Esrei is really silent. It's really the silent Amida. It's quiet. But we daven and we say, please could you open my mouth? Because we can't do it on our own. Thank you. Good to see you. I hope everything's out of order. Okay. And this is also the avoda of serving Hashem. We talked about serving Hashem. We have all these different levels of how we were created. The different parts of our body, our soul, the body, the nefesh, the intellect. Now we're supposed to serve Hashem with our neshama. How do you serve Hashem with your neshama? We serve Hashem with our neshama by referring back to, well, what happ- what, what's the difference between a person with a neshama and without a neshama, God forbid? That's Vayitzer Hashem Elohim Esa Adam Afar Min Ha'adama, Bracious Zion. Hashem created, formed man of the earth, from, of the earth. Vayipach Ba'apav Nishmas Chayim. And he blew into his nostrils a living neshama. And thus, man became a living being. Now there you have nefesh. Previously, just before it said, Hashem gave us a neshama. So the neshama makes a person a nefesh chaya, a living being? Hi, mommy, good morning. What does that tell us? And Rashi asks, what does it mean a living being? Why couldn't you also call the animals nefesh chaya? They also have a nefesh. What the Torah is saying here, says Rashi, is that by giving a person a neshama, he becomes nefesh chaya, a truly living being, in a, in a different category of alive than an animal. There's a lot of things that have a nefesh. But an Adam's nefesh is truly alive because he has a neshama. That's what the verse means. So how is Adam, in the words of Rashi, chaya shebekulam, more alive, more vitally alive 
than any of the other living creatures. Because there is added to him. So what should be the next word? Neshama, right? That should be the next word. He doesn't use the word neshama. Deya vidibur. The ability to think deeply, to know intimately, and speech. That's what makes a person a human. Deya vidibur. And that's what makes us more vitally alive. And so that, it's not enough to serve Hashem only with the body, only with the emotions, only with the intellect. We have to serve Him with our neshama. How is a person going to serve Hashem with his neshama? Through the qualities that the neshama gives us in the physical world, which are deya and dibor. That's how we express it, and that's why we're going to have to speak to Seyar Shmona Esrei. And the neshama that does that is a chelak elokamimel, is a portion of godliness from above. It's the divine. So, a person should not daven only in his heart. The word should cross his lips and be heard to his ears silently, but the voice should not be heard by others. That's a quote, I saw this, this is from the Siddur of the Maharal, but it's a quote from the Shulchan Aruch. And he goes on, and I'm not going to repeat it here because we spoke about it Rosh Hashanah time, that a person has to speak the words because he needs to fill in that which is missing. And then Hashem hears the words to fill them in. The purpose of lack, the purpose of things being missing, the purpose of need is that Hashem should fill it. The reason for pain is that Hashem should heal it. The reason for lack is that Hashem should fulfill it. The reason for hunger is that Hashem should satisfy it. And the process of this is saying, Hashem, I am mekabel. I wish to receive the gift that you're offering me. If I feel pain, then the gift you're offering me is relief or salvation. I wish to receive it. And the Maharal says, but in order to do this, he has to be mevakesh chesrono, to ask for his needs, bimashahu adam chaser. He has to come as a person who needs. But how do you come as a person? What else would I come? You come as a person through Deya and Dibor. That, that, so you have to have the Deya and the Dibor because that is your full expression as a human being. And that brings us all the way back to the beginning of the whole davening series. What is the purpose of a human being? Bridging heaven and earth. Every human being has, it, has our own individual purpose. You can tell that by the fact that none of us are created to look alike. None of us are created to be alike. And that is what distinguishes us from any other creature. There are other animals that are made out of earth. But we are Adam. We are unique. We are somehow more expressive of that. There is a special role that a human fills that isn't filled by a lion or a tiger or an ostrich. And that needs to be there in order to serve Hashem. So we have to come as people. And coming as people means coming with Deya and Dibor. So that is... Let's say uh, Deya is ideas. Deya, yeah, it's it's knowledge, it's thinking, but it's it's deeply experiential knowledge. It's knowing something so deeply that you know it. Nobody has to explain it. Nobody has to prove it. You don't because you know it completely and and intimately. And Debor then means you speak. It. And Debor means speaking it. So, as Abu Darham says, and I know we mentioned this a long time ago, Habracha hi bedibur halev. What makes a bracha? What's a bracha? Okay, so there's a formula of words that makes it a bracha. What's a bracha? A bracha consists of dibur hapeh, speech from the mouth, umachsheves halev, and thought in your heart. Deya and dibur. <laughs> That's how you get a bracha. The Hoshmon Esri is made of 18, 19 brachas. What's a bracha? It's deya and dibur. You have to think it and you have to say it. Not enough to say a bracha without thinking. Probably we're all guilty of it. But it's also not enough to think a bracha without saying. The, the thought of it is that which is hidden, invisible. The speaking of it is that which is tangible. It's out in the world. Just like the person who is made 
of a grafting of guf and neshama, of body and soul. The bracha has a body and the bracha has a soul. It's amazing, this whole bridging, like how everything comes together. By the time we've gotten to Shemona Esrei, we took a long road, what is it, three and a half years, <laughs> to get here, how it all starts to come together into a perfect, perfect fulfillment of the purpose of a person. And then a person is suited to cling to Hashem, his creator, to stand directly in his presence, mitzad nishmaso, from the perspective of his soul, in that aspect. Okay, the body is not really quite fitted to stand before Hashem. Your soul might be, but your body? So the bracha has two parts too. It recognizes that. Your body and soul, and your bracha has a body and a soul. With regard to the eyes looking below and the heart reaching upward, a person should think as if he's standing in the Beis HaMikdash. This is the Shulchan Aruch's explanation of this. What does it mean that you bend your head down so that your eyes are down, and yet your heart is up? It's that you envision as you begin your Shemona Esrei, that you are standing inside the Beis HaMikdash. It's easier to do once we've learned about going from the outer courtyard to the inner courtyard to the Heichal, right? We can actually envision that we're standing there. Uve libo, while standing with your feet in the Beis HaMikdash, belibo with your heart, it's directed upward to the heavens. That's what it means to cast your eyes down and your heart up. To put yourself mentally in the Beis HaMikdash. And the Maharal says this is also a reflection. The eyes casting down is a humility. Mm-hmm. And it demonstrates our yira, our awe, that Hashem is so great when we realize that we have need and we realize both the power of that which can be painful or needed and also the power of Hashem to, to solve everything. He has it all. That's overwhelming, and it should bring us to a state of humility. And that bends our head down, casts our eyes down. But our heart is lifted up to the heavens, which is indicative of our love for Hashem and our recognition that, yes, we need Him, but Hashem is interested in hearing from us. Those are merged together Whereas previously, we worked on Ava of Hashem, we worked on Yira of Hashem, and Shemona Esrei, they come together at one time. And the Maharal says, in teaching us that a person should direct his heart so that his eyes are cast directed downward and his heart is directed upward toward the heavens and down toward the earth of the Beis HaMikdash, that means that when a person is saying the words out of his mouth, he should be thinking that the Shekhinah is directly before him because that's what would be the case if you were in the Beis HaMikdash. <laughs> if you're standing there right in front of the parochas at the Mizbeach Hazav, the Shekhinah would be directly before you. And in this way, a person can remove all of the thoughts that disturb him, that bother him, that trouble him, that interfere with his clarity. And this will help him have pure kavana and focus while he's davening. And of course, if a person would be giving, you know, we'd say speaking before a king, he would be careful and he would prepare his words and think about them before he says them. For us, it might be easier to say, when you're going to give a big presentation, you plan it ahead. You make an outline, maybe some PowerPoint slides. You, you practice, right? You think, what am I going to say? Why am I here? So all the more so when a person is standing before the Shekhinah. And this is hinted to by the fact that our tefillos, everything is directed towards the Shmona Esrei, which is the Kodesh HaKadashim. That's where the Kruvim are, two facing each other. It's face to face. The, the Kodesh HaKadashim is the place where it's described as heaven and earth kiss. It's a meeting place for the spiritual and the physical. So we bring ourselves to there 
the Kruvim are there. That is where the Shechina enters and all Bracha enters into the world from between the Kruvim. From between this face-to-face loving embrace, loving relationship, loving kiss. That's where we are stepping into with our Shmona Esrei. Is a face-to-face. Okay, I think let's, let's stop there. Uh, a good spot. They had uh, at Ori Eliyahu, they had one day for the children. I mean, it was just the girls of all Brakot. Oh, I heard about that. I didn't hear, I, there was a video, I which I didn't It was watch. yesterday. Or the day it was before. recently, yeah. That's such a nice, it's such a special yeah. thing to do. They have also classes for the girls at different ages. They have before davening, like five minutes of learning about davening. It's really yes. very special. Very 